Hello, America. Hello, friends. Welcome to Your Leo Nation, where we believe in the rule of law, a civil society, and self-responsibility. We are so happy to have a great guest tonight with us, Bill Bodner. Bill is the special agent in charge of the uh, Drug Administration, uh, Drug Enforcement Administration, my bad, DEA, uh, Los Angeles Field Division. Uh, Bill, welcome aboard. So grateful to have you here tonight. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. It's great to talk to you. It really is a pleasure. I know uh, you and I briefly crossed paths when I was chief of the California Highway Patrol in LA County, and um, and uh, but you have moved up. You've moved up to the ranks uh, rather quickly uh, through your just about thirty years now, right? Yeah, th- thirty-one years actually. Uh, actually, this month, thirty-one years, and I know you have spent uh, a great deal of that time in Los Angeles, in, in this Los Angeles field division, um, doesn't cover just Los Angeles. That's where you're actually headquartered. We can talk about that. But tell us a little bit about your career um, sure. and, and how you got to where you are now. Sure. So, uh, you know, I, I like to tell people that uh, when I first applied to DEA, it was 1989, and I was rejected right away, Mark. I was a guy out of college, no law enforcement experience, no military experience. Um, but I knew that that was the career that this was the career that I wanted. So uh, I had a good recruiter, you know, someone who wasn't just kind of filling out paperwork, but, but spent some time with me and said, Hey, here's the direction you ought to go. And I actually went back. I had my college degree, went back to graduate school, applied again a couple of years later and uh, got hired luckily. And for me, I just knew that this was going to be my career for the next uh, 30 plus years as, as it has been. I was uh, assigned to work, grew up in the East Coast, New Jersey, Massachusetts, immediately out of the academy, transferred to the furthest office there was from uh, from that part of the country in Los Angeles. And I've been here in Los Angeles with the exception of a couple year stint in Washington, D.C. I've been here for, for most of that 30 years. Well, you know what? This is, this is fascinating. I actually didn't know that about... Um your path you said you rejected one time and short stories you didn't quit you came back what was it about the DEA that had you in that path to you know here or nowhere else yeah that's a great question so here's what it was I, I remember you know finishing up college and interviewing for jobs and the thought of when it came down to the reality of what I was going to commit myself to and you know make my living doing every single day it was not going to be something that uh, was a nine to five behind a desk. Ironically, that's kind of where I am now, right? But but <laughs> but but when yeah. I was you know twenty five years old, it was not going to be something where I was nine to five behind a desk. I needed something more than that. And then also, it I, it wasn't going to be something that was uh, in. Not that there's anything wrong with this, but I didn't want something motivated by the almighty dollar. You know, I wanted to do something where there was some kind of purpose or higher value. Uh, to society or to the community. And at that time, drugs were a huge issue. Uh, it looked like an exciting career. And I was just all about it then. Well, I, it looked like an exciting career because uh, I'm sure that it was then still now, like you said, uh, you're the boss out here in one of the busiest parts uh, of the uh, the administration here in Southern California. But I'm sure the time that you came on and working in Los Angeles, I mean, at that time, I mean, Bill, we were like in the height of the crack cocaine epidemic here in Los Angeles, not, not too far, actually, really where I grew up. I mean, I, I, I really I'm curious. I mean, 
what was that like for a new agent being really dumped in right the 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 teeth of, of the machine oh yeah it was it was uh it was a lot to handle because like i said i didn't come from a law enforcement or military profession you know i made it through the academy had good training but still i was in i was you know pretty green and uh, assigned to work on a task force with uh la county sheriff's deputies who had probably 15 years on the job or lapd detectives who had the same amount of time on the job and here I am, this kind of uh, college kid, basically, you know, the reality of what I was back then. And it was the the height of the crack cocaine time epidemic in L.A. A lot of gang violence, um, crack cocaine everywhere, PCP, a huge issue back then. That was really what the focus was back then. It was all about cocaine and crack cocaine. And it was uh, it was quite quite an adjustment for me to kind of. Um, to kind of, you know, prove myself in that world coming in with no experience. Yeah, I bet to say the least, I'm sure it was a shock. I mean, uh, you know, I was a brand new officer, uh, probably well, not the tail end of that, but as things are kind of slowing down, I guess, um, people like you and other task forces were, were getting a hand, a handle, I think, um, in the early 1990s. I mean, I started down here in 1991, a patrol. And I was involved with some of that in a very ancillary uh, role, assisting DEA, other federal agents on whisper stops and yep. wall stops, yep. things like this, trying to get to the big dogs. And, uh, you know, watching a lot of these people, you know, we take them down, book them, you know, FIM, book them, and then let them right back out. Um, not to give away too many secrets about how cops <laughs> right. do stuff. Right. But, um, but it, it was fascinating. It was a learning curve for me. Um, what... Um, you said you worked with, uh, uh, I guess, on some task forces or just yep. uh, more loosely uh, con uh, coordinating with? Uh, no, a, a formal task force, which is still in existence here in L.A., called the Southern California Drug Task Force, part of what's called a HIDA initiative, High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Initiative. And that's kind of like a special funding source uh, run out of the Office of National Drug Control Policy separate from DEA, they, they fund the state and local task forces to just kind of build a synergy between federal and local law enforcement in the community. The premise being that, and, and I agree with this premise 100%, that most often local county and state officers know the community the best, know what the problems are, know who the problems are, and then as federal agents, we can come in with additional resources, maybe some very uh, specific expertise, maybe like wiretaps, for example, and mm -hmm. kind of put those two sides together and really have uh, a greater impact in, in doing good for the community. Yeah. Well, I said that the, the time that I spent working with the DEA, again, in an ancillary uh, a capacity and never formally on a task force, worked with a lot of, a lot of your guys and gals and just been, uh, I, I tell you right now, just, just fantastic people who have specific Great knowledge, obviously it kind of goes without saying. But for me, a cop for thirty years, I'm I, you know I, I was always amazed at the level of professionalism and the information that you and your colleagues actually possess, and and the ability to actually utilize that information. People, including myself, just probably very difficult to appreciate just how impactful you guys are to keeping us as safe as we are in this country, you know, from drug use, obviously a lot more to do, a long way to go yep. and brand new challenges that, you know, I certainly want to touch on. Yep. Um, 
kind of fast forward from the crack cocaine epidemic, PCP, heroin. Yep. Um, and, and now the drug is fentanyl. The drug is fentanyl. fentanyl. I mean, yeah, it's, it's all about the yeah. synthetic drugs right now, Mark. And we, we've seen that mm-hmm. shift probably starting, you know, I, I think we did a good job in this country. It used to be, there used to be a lot of methamphetamine labs here in Southern California where the, where the methamphetamine was actually manufactured here. And then in around 2004, 2005, some federal legislation was passed to make it more difficult to get the chemicals to make meth in this country. And, uh, you know, the benefit to us here locally was those labs that are horrible for the environment went away, right? The negative part of that was it pushed the production south into Mexico, where they made the connections, Mexican drug cartels made the connections with China to get the chemicals to make meth and started super labs, what we call them, basically mass producing the synthetic drugs. And, you know, one thing, and we're seeing that same kind of technique now with fentanyl. And one thing I explain to people when they say like why methamphetamine and why fentanyl um if you're a drug cartel and you want to you know maximize your profits and you're dealing in cocaine you know cocaine the coca plant's not something that's grown in mexico so you have to source the drug from south america you have to somehow get it smuggled through the transit zone in central america a bunch of different countries get it into mexico and then you're smuggling into the united states uh, and you're tacking on literally either a few hundred or maybe a few thousand dollars a kilo to make money. So it's difficult to scale that and really scale that up and make huge amounts of money. So that's why the uh, synthetic stimulant methamphetamine has really replaced cocaine, uh, at least here on the on the West Coast, as the number one stimulant drug. Sure, there's still cocaine available, but there's literally tons more methamphetamine than cocaine now available on our streets. The same is true for opiate drugs. It used to be heroin. I mean, that was one of the staple drugs of the drug cartels going back to the 70s. In order to grow uh, poppies in Mexico, it does grow there, but you need a very specific climate in a very specific area. So if you're a drug cartel, you have to control that territory. And that's one reason why there was a lot of violence in Mexico it was fighting over this territory where it was uh, uh, conducive, I guess, to, to grow poppy plants. And then you have to have people working in the fields. They're scoring the plants. They're scraping the gum. It's very, very labor intensive. And again, that's hard to scale. And there's only one growing season. So it's hard to scale and make money with heroin. Again, you turn to synthetic drugs where if you have the connections to get chemicals to make the drugs, which they do because they they made those connections with methamphetamine and it's the same group supplying the chemicals now to make uh, fentanyl. There's really no limit to the amount of drugs you can create. It's just a lab in a warehouse, a lab in a garage. Uh, you know, uh, you can move it with a, with a tractor trailer to another part of the country if you have to. And that's why we're seeing this huge explosion in synthetic drugs is because it's so, so profitable for the drug cartels. Well, it makes sense. And, and, you know, <clears throat> I listened to you and obviously I want you to continue because there's so much information about fentanyl. We'll hear about it. Um, it's ubiquitous. It's, it's every place in the news, the media, social media, um, and, and warning about the dangers. But um, when I listened to you a few weeks ago at a function where you actually shared this, I was, I felt mm-hmm. so educated. I actually felt ignorant, you know, afterwards, like, oh my God, I, you know, I thought I kind of knew about fentanyl, and I and I don't. One of the things you talked about um, was the quote unquote mm-hmm. counterfeit 
uh, uh, right. medication. And can you touch yeah. on that about the, the, the misconception about the And that's so important because, Mark, that's what's affecting our teenagers, you know. When I, it's almost to the point where, I, you know, when I hear about a victim who died of a fentanyl overdose or, uh, you know, poisoning, um, I, if I ask how old and if they say a teenager, I just know right away it was a pill. So really the, the, the root of this, just to go back and kind of put it in context, goes back to the prescription drug opiate crisis that we had in this country. You know, I tell people 2012, there were 255 million opiate prescriptions written in the United States, a huge number, right? And, uh, you know, some of them written without really medical necessity, a very small, small fractional percentage of doctors, of pharmacists who are unethical, uh, just like we have in our own profession, and we know that this very sure. infinitesimally small percentage of bad people can still cause tremendous harm to the community, just like in our profession. So, hey, we, we realized what was going on. We dialed back the prescriptions through education of doctors, pharmacies, law enforcement efforts, and that number now is down to maybe 140 million, which is probably more where it should be. But what happened? It created awareness about these prescription drug pills. It created a demand for these prescription drug pills. So when the supply was, was properly tightened up and diversion into the black market was stopped, the light bulb went off for these drug cartels and they said, hey, we can step in here now and capitalize on this. So we started seeing probably uh, about 2016, right around that time frame. We started seeing that the Mexican drug cartels really get involved in fentanyl production and especially the creation of these counterfeit prescription pills. And what they did is they took a, a pill made by Mallincroft, I think is the company, a 30 milligram oxycodone pill. I think it's called Roxycodone is kind of the brand name or something. And uh, they just started making them, you know, at that time by the thousands and shipping them up here to the United States. So what happens up here? People are accustomed to the black market for legitimate oxycodone pills, oxycontin pills, whatever. So they're on the street, they're buying these pills, and they're, it's not the ingredients that they think it is, right? There's no pharmaceutical ingredients in these pills now, whether it's fake oxycodone, fake Percocet, fake Xanax. I've seen it with all of them. No pharmaceutical ingredients, just fentanyl. It kind of generally mimics the effects of the legitimate prescription drug, but it's infinitely more dangerous. And it's that deception of, you know, people thinking they're taking something else, especially teenagers, that's causing a lot of the harm uh, in the community. And also, Mark, the, the other part of it is, you know, it's just that it's because of the virtual world we live in now or the digital world, it's just so much more available. Like you can go on social media connect with someone selling these pills if you're a teenager have them actually delivered to your house or down the street and pay pay for them with a payment app so it's not like now it's just there's quote certain bad neighborhoods where, where drugs are sold everywhere now like the, the parents have to have the mindset that like everywhere is uh is an open-air drug market almost because because these drugs are so readily available and we're talking about a drug this is a scary part 50 times more powerful than heroin and it's now, uh, you know, infinitely more available than heroin ever was just just 10 years ago. See, Bill, this is, I mean, look, I'm a parent. I have a, you know, soon to be nine year old son, but it doesn't matter if you have a 29 year old or 19 or nine year old. 
um, these things are uh, uh, topics where, you know, parents mm-hmm. who sleep have nightmares about things happening to their kids. And, and I, I'm one of them. I'm human. I, I hear stuff like this. A couple of things. Uh, the, the, so the counterfeit is, it, it, it's just, it's fascinating in a, in a horrible way to me. But the other thing you touched on a few weeks ago when you spoke about this was the word, um, uh, talking mm-hmm. about the word mm-hmm. laced with, or the phrase laced with. And, so, and you made it clear. It's like, Right. Nothing's laced here. In other words, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you expand on that. The other thing is going back to the, like you said, the open air market, the availability, um, you know, how ubiquitous these these pills are over the Internet. I'm astounded again. It's just my ignorance, but I'm astounded that it, it's so easy for the traffickers, for, for these criminals to actually move this stuff across the internet and we'll come back to the mm-hmm. to the laced uh word in a minute but it, it what involvement does the dea have or you know other federal agencies or local agencies about trying to monitor trying to crack down on the actual the actual selling of the stuff yeah so online? so and here's why that here's why that selling online can be very easy and this is what because a lot of times we'll say hey um our social media companies doing enough to protect our children from these people preying upon them. But, but I'm going to ask you to even take it one step further and say, like, we all know, uh, hey, if I'm a football fan and I look at certain football videos on Instagram, let's say, what are they going to send to me? What are they going to direct to me for the next you know, week? What's that algorithm going to say? This guy wants to look at these videos. He, he, we're going to send him these videos. So the danger that we have is the possibility that a teenager curious about drugs, not uncommon. They search for a hashtag or for one specific thing and they see it and they say, okay, you know, delete it. Now, what happens if for the next five days, 10 days, they're bombarded with more traffic with that same hashtag or that same, you know, it's possible that these, these algorithms are actually connecting teenagers with drug dealers like that's really the reality of what could be happening yeah. so what do we do we 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 speak with social media companies uh when we see a problem we alert them of it we try to educate them because the expectation just like the expectation isn't that all parents understand what's going on the expectation at least a year ago or a year and a half ago should not have been hey these social media companies know this is going on and they're not stopping it but we're getting to the point that that probably should be the expectation. You know, we've educated them on the type of language that's used, the type of hashtags, emojis, code words, et cetera. And at some point, and I don't know, you know, when that'll be, but there comes the accountability piece, which is like, hey, these things are happening on your platform. Uh, you're responsible for them, you right. know? Yeah. Now, I can only imagine, uh, you know, what the challenge is because, you know, the, the floodgates are wide open. Um, and look, we know in law enforcement that, you know, a lot of these crooks are, I mean, they're as clever as any individual comes. And, and when you have these syndicates, when you have organizations that are all working together, you know, like some bad cartoon for evil, yep. it's very, very, very difficult to stop them. It's not impossible. My God, the challenges are, are enormous. And when I said, you know, what is the role of the DEA or, or other federal agencies? Um, it was certainly just an inquiry. It's like, I'm kind of curious how do you wrap your hands around this? And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. Now, going back a minute ago, when uh, I, I asked you about the yep. lacing, um, 
that's yeah. that's a misnomer, by the way. It was for me. It's like it opened my it eyes when you explained this. So so have at it. Yeah. So so I and it's almost like it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because a lot of times people will say, "Hey, prescription drugs laced with fentanyl," and that makes it sound like someone took a legitimate prescription drug, added a little bit of fentanyl to it, and was selling it. And that's the that's just not true. That's not what's happening. Um, the pills now. And I'm going to tell you 100% of the pills, all of them that are sold on the street now that are sold on social media, they're all fake, they're all counterfeit, and they contain uh, fentanyl, there's no other active um, pharmaceutical ingredients in them. So they're not laced with anything. It's just a fentanyl pill with some uh, additives and fillers and binders to keep it together. Now, when I tell people, hey, 100% of the pills are fake, that's a, you know, that's a bold statement. How can you say 100%? Mark, all I can say is we're in the pill business. I mean, we, we actually have, getting back to your previous question, how do we you know, handle things on social media? We have a team of agents that works social media cases, and they try to get these dealers out from behind the computer screen, meet them on the street, make buys. We're making buys you know, for, on traditional street corner type things, mid-level and wholesale deals where we're buying 10,000, 100,000 pills at a time. And we're seizing huge quantities of these pills, as many as a million at a time sometimes. We test them at our laboratory, and we do not see any legitimate pharmaceutical ingredients in these pills right now. And that's one thing I have to stress to people is, like, if you're buying a pill on the street or on social media or getting it anywhere other than a pharmacist or directly from a doctor, right now your assumption has to be, not should be, has to be that it's fake uh, if you want uh, to protect yourself. It sounds just like you know, what you're saying here, I know we talked earlier about, you mentioned about, you know, it's not just a quote unquote bad neighborhood uh, or, you know, maybe something that's more uh, something we actually uh, uh, um, associate with drug users, but are we, are, are you still seeing, are the, the victims, are they predominantly someone who's already addicted to drugs, who has a drug history or, is there a predominance of like experimental entry level? Yeah, that's that's a great question. So, so the answer is no. It, it, when we see a, a drug caused death today, it's not the stereotypical drug caused death of ten years ago, right? It used to be. Um, well, well, let me put it this way: we've always had an issue with our community and helping people suffering from substance use disorder, and those people used to be the ones that were most at risk for a drug caused death. Why? Because they were using the drug every day. They were sometimes going into treatment. They would come out of treatment. And once they were out of treatment and they had detoxed, uh, their level of tolerance to a drug was greatly diminished. And they would go back to taking a dose that they previously took. It's too much for them. They're poisoned and they die. Today, what we're seeing is something completely different, where we still have harm to the community with substance use disorder. And, and I don't want to, you know, make it sound like that's not happening. Yes. People suffering from substance use disorder are dying from fentanyl, but what's also happening now is a group of drug users. I'll call them experimental drug users. These are people in their teenagers that maybe never took drugs before or have some very limited experience with drugs. They feel safe experimenting with pills because they think it's a prescription drug and they feel like, Based on societal norms right now, they feel like prescription drugs are safe, so they don't think it'll really have any adverse consequences. They're experimenting with these drugs, not knowing it's fentanyl, and fentanyl is killing them. Then there's the group of 
let's call them recreational drug users. And how I would describe these people or maybe how they would describe themselves is, is something like, hey, I don't have a drug problem. Maybe, um, you know, one night a month, two nights a month, I like to party with cocaine and my friends and we go out to a club. Mm-hmm. That's where we're seeing cocaine laced with fentanyl or cocaine uh, or fentanyl mistaken for cocaine uh, cause these kind of what we'll call like um, mass overdose events or or multi-overdose events where there's like three or four people in a house or three or four people at a location. They'll all use this drug and all get poisoned by it. So we that that there's harm in those two areas that we really didn't see uh, to the magnitude we're seeing it today ever before. Um, it, it's uh, it's fascinating on so many levels. In other words, the the uh, the the rapid evolution of this. I mean, it has been rapid, and, and of course. You laid the foundation as to really why what the genesis of this was. It's kind of a self-inflicted wound with the number of prescriptions that that uh, yeah. uh, were offered up over the last you know, 10, 15 years and kind of laid the foundation for it. You did touch on something there about um, the – we talked about laced as opposed to pure, mm-hmm. not pure, but, mm-hmm. but um, uh, only fentanyl and these counterfeit pills and, and no other – medicinal or narcotic uh, uh, ingredients, but you did just talk about uh, cocaine-laced or fentanyl-laced, I'm sorry. Can you explain to me and to the people, what is, in other words, you have fentanyl, which is deadly, and and it it can cause the high, have the effect that a drug user or an experimental person might want to, uh, you know, experience what is the purpose for a a drug cartel, a a a mid level, a low level drug uh, pusher to actually lace cocaine with fentanyl? What is the is there a selling point? Is do, yeah. do they actually make it known it's like that, or is this by chance or what? So so two things are happening, and that's a great question because I think intuitively, you know, you're taking a drug that's an opiate, let's call that a depressant, and you're mixing it with, a, a, you know, cocaine, a stimulant, and you would think, why, that doesn't make sense. Why would someone mix, why would someone purposefully mix those two drugs? They do mix those two drugs. Uh, it's called a speedball, and it's actually like, the, like uh, John Belushi is the guy in our generation who died in Hollywood of a speedball. At that time, it was cocaine and heroin. But here's what the premise of that mixture is. The premise is that the perceived uh, negative effects of the opiate will be counteracted by the positive effects of the stimulant, and the perceived negative effects of the stimulant will be counteracted by the perceived positive effects of the opiate. So it's almost like they feel that putting these two drugs together is going to create a pure euphoric high. Um, That's why it would be mixed on purpose and uh, incredibly dangerous for a couple of reasons. Number one, just the strength of fentanyl, two milligrams is enough to potentially kill you. And number two, you know, who's mixing the cocktail? There's no room for error when you're using a synthetic drugs. There's just not. So we are seeing definitely cases of deaths and, and overdoses where that cocktail was, was used and it just, you know, led to, led to bad, uh, bad experiences. The other thing that's happening, which is equally people are like, no, that can't happen. You, you, you know, that, you, you can't be serious. 
hey, what I tell people is there's no barcodes on these packages and there's no um, warning labels on these packages. This isn't like Amazon where you order something and you can track it and you know what you're hopefully getting, et cetera. What happens frequently is somewhere in the supply chain, these, call, these drugs are coming across uh, the border. Now, to your question about who would mix them, it's generally, you kind of touched on it at the end, at the lower retail level. It's usually the retail level distributor that'll create the drug cocktail. And he's doing that kind of for brand identification where he's going to sell it to someone and they're going to say, that's an incredible high. I'm going to go back to this dealer. So that's not necessarily something that's being done by the cartels mixing cocaine and fentanyl. But when they ship it across the border, and I'm sure, you know, you can relate to this from your days on the roads, There'll be kilograms of fentanyl in a car and kilograms of cocaine in a car. Now, these, the packaging looks exactly the same. And sure, if you had pure fentanyl powder and pure cocaine, you could tell the difference with the naked eye. But don't forget, neither drug is pure. It's cut with things, you know, mannitol, uh, lactose, whatever it is. And th those cuts make up a majority of the product. So when you look at it, most of what you're actually seeing is the cut. So it's going to look identical. So if someone in that supply chain makes a mistake and passes a kilo of uh, fentanyl to someone when he was told to give them a kilogram of cocaine, they're going to break it down, put it you know, into distribution as if it's cocaine, and it's going to go out in the street and it's going to harm a lot of people. And that scenario happens all the time as well. So it's incompetent drug dealers on one side with just mistaken product identity. And then the other side is people trying to create this, uh, this perfect euphoric high, you know, mixing drugs that are extremely dangerous to play with. It just sounds like a, 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 an evil crapshoot here. I mean, it just sounds, things are so wide open. Um, how many, how many agents do you have uh, in your field division? I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. So we have right now, uh, about 225 and that covers the state of nevada the state of hawaii guam and saipan and the seven counties that make up uh the greater the greater la area so you can see where the whole um you know task force program thing where we'll deputize state and local uh county officers that's huge for us and that's really the only thing that enables us to to impact the problem successfully well the reason i asked that i had i had an idea um i actually thought it was a little more than that but but even uh even thinking it was a little more i i want the listeners and viewers to understand what challenge you as a, a drug enforcement uh, administration leader are, are facing and i mean the complexities the enormity of this what percentage, uh, what percentage of, of caseloads are dominated by the fentanyl problem right now? Is it almost exclusive? Is it eighty yeah. percent? Is it fifty percent? Yeah, it, it, it's it's almost exclusive. And and here's the thing, Mark, which has, you know, when dealing with Mexican drug cartels, this has kind of uh, because of the way they operate it, because of the way they operate, it's kind of helped us actually. And that is that they all traffic several different drugs, right? It's, they're not, there's no organization that just does fentanyl and another one that just does methamphetamine. They're all doing all the drugs. So even when we're, you know, three years ago investigating an organization for methamphetamine, we're seizing fentanyl 
as part of that investigation too and charging them with that. And the same thing now, we'll be investigating a you know, fentanyl case and we're gonna seize methamphetamine because they're moving that as well. So all these organizations, it's the same organizations and they're, they're poly drug, meaning they're, they're moving whatever drug they can get their hands on to make a profit, preferring the synthetic drugs because they're so profitable. Hey, these, these pills they're making for about 13 cents in Mexico. They're selling them up here wholesale. And when I say wholesale, that's, you know, let's say buying several thousand pills, anywhere from like 45, 50 cents to a couple bucks. And then the retail, maybe $6, 10, $15, depending on where you are, uh, Mm-hmm. Where, you know, where you're purchasing the pill, what your relationship is, how many you're buying, et cetera. So you can see it's incredibly profitable. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you know, going back to the, you know, late 80s, early 90s with mm-hmm. uh, crack cocaine and, uh, and powder cocaine and heroin, but, but, but really crack, um, you know, there were a lot of tactics and strategies, partnerships, uh, campaigns that helped to bring that, I won't say to an end, but to seriously curtail that. Look, we live in, we live in a different world. I got out a couple of years ago, but we certainly live in a different world now politically. There's just no way around it. We're not going to get into mm-hmm. politics. Mm-hmm. I know you're still on the job, but it is reality. We, I think we, we all realize that, you know, people our age, how things have changed over the last three decades. Yeah. Do you, what do you see, um, not the end game, because that's just too final, but, you know, in the not too distant future, do you see uh, enough support from from the federal agencies, from the federal government in general, from local law enforcement, from politicians, from community groups? Do you see the same uh, help that we got 30 years ago um, today? And what do you see the path forward? You know, I, so here's what I think. I, I don't think the, I think that uh, we probably need for, in the law enforcement side, a lot of, let me put it this way. A lot of that is going to be on us in the law enforcement side to do a better job of articulating our value and what we do. Like if I, if, you know, and, and I was very, one of the things when I took over the office here in LA that, that I didn't agree with was the way we would discuss our work and we would talk about, we would make our work about the drug trafficker. Hey, we caught this drug trafficker today. We seized this much drugs today. That's not necessarily, uh, that doesn't necessarily resonate with the community. You know, when we tell the story of what we do, uh, or when we describe our mission, l- let me give you an example, and I'll use a CHP, right? Simple example. There's people in the community that think, hey, the mission of the CHP is to write speeding tickets. And if you put it like that, the public is not going to see value in that, Mark. But when CHP flips it and says, the mission of the CHP is actually to keep your children safe on the freeway. And in order to do that, we're going to have to write some speeding tickets. We're going to go after the people that are causing the biggest safety risk and the most egregious violators. And we're going to have to do that to keep our families safe. That's a that's a change where the public actually sees value in that. So I think us in law enforcement, we have to take responsibility for telling our story differently. And I've found that when we do that, the public is more engaged with us. Uh, they are more behind us. And, and it, it's kind of giving us more momentum to address the problem. And here's here's a real question that I ask. And I and I talk about this case 
And I know when I talk about it, people think, oh, you're just talking about that one case. It's an outlier. No, the reality is I'm choosing this case because it's been fully adjudicated and I could talk about it. It's not going to taint a jury by me bringing it up. But there was a case in Pasadena, California, uh, September 2020. One drug dealer caused seven overdoses and three deaths in uh, one weekend, in one weekend. And in California, like I'm cognizant of the fact that we don't necessarily, and when I say we, I just mean the community at large, right? They feel like drug trafficking is a victimless crime. They feel like we shouldn't be incarcerating drug dealers. But here's my very real question to them, which hopefully the light bulb goes off. If law enforcement doesn't intervene, what happens the next weekend? When that person just caused seven overdoses and three deaths last weekend, what is your expectation of next weekend if that person's still on the street? And 100% of the time, people will say, yeah, I, I, guess, I guess we have to do something about that. So that's the side of the story that we need to tell is the story of the victims. Who are the victims of drug trafficking? What about the, uh, the babies born addicted to opiates? What about the teenagers dying of fentanyl? That's the value of DEA is reducing that harm in the community. And hey, I, I don't have no problem people using the term harm reduction. My goal is reduce harm every day. We're gonna do it sometimes by arresting people. We're gonna do it sometimes by going to high schools and talking about kids. And, you know, we're going to do it sometimes through PSA announcements about what, what, what fentanyl is and where it is in the drug supply so people can make better decisions. But the, the reality is I do see some momentum now, some things I'm a little frustrated with, uh, but I think it's on us to really articulate the importance of what we're doing right now more than ever. Well, Bill, you said it beautifully. And by the way, the the public information manager for the California Highway Patrol just retired. They could use someone <laughs> like you up there. With the CHP. You put that. You put that very well. And and the, the analogy you used with the tickets and and protecting your family. It's a great analogy. Um, and that message does need to get out there again. As a parent, you know, it goes right to my heart when I hear this stuff about other parents who've lost children. And that message that you actually delivered needs to be put out there as much as possible. It's fantastic. And now the message is always important. I'm a big believer in it. I was a PIO for years for the CHP and, and, and the right message delivered the right way goes a long way to help law enforcement get the job done they need to do. But of course we also realize that there's the hammer side of it as well. The enforcement Mm -hmm. side, Mm -hmm. Is there is there uh, is there any any plan any effort again without giving away anything that's confidential? Yeah. But uh, generally speaking, what about um, hitting the manufacturers where they live? Quite quite literally, is there anything right. going on like that? You know, I, I we have agents assigned working in Mexico. Um, it's it's a challenging environment to work in down there. I, I think everyone in the U.S. government has been on the record. Uh, asking them to do more about addressing the labs down there and, uh, you know, trying to stop the precursor chemicals from getting into the country to make these drugs. But, you know, the, the way I look at that, Mark, is is that is a political issue at this point. And I mean, that's the reality. It's not a law enforcement issue. It's a political issue. And I have no control over that. You know, I, I'm here in Los Angeles dealing with what of the results of that maybe, right? But, uh, I think that's going to be something that it's just, you know, politically sooner or later, some decisions have to be made about that. Okay. Gotcha. We're, we're back. 
but uh bill um it's uh like i said it's been enlightening for me i know it's been enlightening for uh the listeners and viewers uh it, it was an honor to work with uh the dea all the years that i did again in an ancillary role uh want to thank you for your time um I'm looking forward to talking with you again. I'm sure we'll be uh, having some rubber chicken meetings over the, <laughs> the weeks and months Absolutely. And, right. and years to come. And uh, thank you for your service. It's uh, Bill Bodner, Drug Enforcement Administration, Special Agent in Charge. Sir, thank you for my friend. Stay safe. And uh, thank you for all do. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for what you do, too, of supporting people still working out there. It's appreciated. Absolutely. Uh, Bill, don't you go away because I want you to hear like everybody else. Folks, check us out, yourleonation.org. Follow us on Instagram. Check us out on YouTube. Click the, the like button, subscribe button. It really, really helps. And don't forget about our nonprofit partner, uh, Your Leo Project. It's the Leo Project. Find it on Your Leo Project. We escape $5,000 today to the families of the fallen officers from the Almani Police Department. It's because of supporters like you that the, the LEO Project was able to do that. So please support us so we can support those who protect you and all of our families. God bless you. We'll talk to you next time.